I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf in my local Hy-Vee grocery store in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, yeah, hi. hi. Uh, thank you, ma'am. I think she likes my digital recorder. Uh, as you stroll through the aisles on your next store visit, start asking, how did these groceries get here? Uh, go over to the fish section. Uh, who, who was on the boat hauling in that shrimp? Uh, give me a few minutes. Let me walk over here. Yep, yep, there it is. Slossa, Slossa. How much work to get a new product on a shelf? How long? What was the cost? And all the labels, especially the ones that say certified organic, how do you really know that we can trust the auditors behind those labels? And and the entire supply chain and the grocery industry is nearly mind-boggling, especially logistics. I will never think about groceries the same way after reading Benjamin Lohr's book, The Secret Life of Groceries. There are six docu-stories in this special book, and Benjamin Lohr is going to tell us more coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. The Secret Life of Groceries, I had no idea what to expect in this book. Uh, the first chapter was very entrepreneurial in nature. It was about the story of the Trader Joe's founder. The, the next story is about a truck driver named Lynn. And by then, I was drawn into Ben's writing. Uh, this book could have easily been titled The Obscure Lives of the Men and Women behind the grocery industry. So the first question I just had to ask, Ben, can you even take a guess? I wanted to know if his eating habits had changed since writing the book. Yeah, I, and, and it's probably the number one question that I, I've been getting from, from friends, family, media, everywhere. Uh, and the answer is truly no. <laughs> and I think that the, you know, and I'll caveat that in a few ways. But but one of the big take-home messages from the book for me was that we had I had reached this limits of like vote with your dollars and th- that you can influence the system as a consumer um, in ways that I, I were kind of foundational knowledge to me. That's how I, I grew up on Michael Pollan and Eric Schlosser. Fast Food Nation is Eric Schlosser's great, great book. Um, and he kind of ends that with the like Burger King mantra, like have it your way, um, vote with your dollars. If, if you don't like the current system I've just described, well, like demand change with your pocketbook. <clears throat> and I think one of the messages that this book really drove home to me was that there are limitations on that, that grocery is so big, so competitive, the margins are so small, uh, and these stores are caught uh, competing with each other um, in ways where, and, and I guess, and there's so many different layers of the chain that you don't have visibility to make informed consumer choices. And there's all these actors that are acting to like obscure that or give you like a false sense of empowerment over where your dollars are going that, that the vote with your dollars paradigm to me kind of ended. So, um, I, before I wrote the book, I was pretty ethical consumer, organic, free, fair trade, free range. I, I think the book really explores the limits of all of those. <laughs> and, and I, I certainly don't advocate them, but I, I still, I still buy them because I, I don't think there's that many other options. 
out there. I, um, I the caveat oh, is go ahead. Yeah. I, I, oh no! I was just going to say the caveat is that like some of the I, I I do stay away from Thai shrimp if I'm honest because I there were some stories in there that were just I don't want to associate yes. them that I eat my shrimp and yes. it's a very selfish it, it has nothing to do with changing the industry because I actually rationally after writing the book know that by not buying Thai shrimp I may actually be hurting the very people I think that I'm protecting because industry may respond to that kind of boycott mentality by just shipping over to India or the Philippines or, you know, Vietnam and, and starting the same bad practices in a new place. Um, and Thailand may be instituting reforms at, that I, that I'm like boycotting. Um, but <laughs> let's be honest after reading some of, you know, and speaking to those people, um, I, I don't want that, those images with my shrimp. I have even found myself when I'm at a restaurant I open up the menu and I'm thinking, I almost wish I could see the supply chain for every item, including the ingredients, thanks to you and your book. But a quick question. Um, This could be a movie. It could either be a movie or, first of all, this could be a great 60-minute segment. Uh, If not that, it'd make a great docuseries. I think you said, have the rights been acquired to this book? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was optioned by a wonderful. Um, it's actually an interesting concept that that I, you know, when I wrote the book, I kind of envisioned it as like a, you know, it's a series of six topics, each of which are kind of like a sixty minutes episode, right. or you know, a nice article in the New Yorker or the Atlantic. Each each section kind of could stand on its own in that way. Um, and this production company, who really specializes in reality TV, bought it on, on the idea that because so much of the book is like focusing on like hidden actors in the chain, and, and it's very character based. Um, they wanted to figure out how to turn it into something that was like a hybrid journalism reality TV show. Um, and so we're mapping that out with the Discovery Channel. Now, I will tell you between the two of us or and your audience, I, I, I don't think it will happen. Um, it's pretty hard to sell a TV show, but uh, it's certainly out there in the world. Uh, and, you know, my fingers are crossed. <laughs> well, the, the, as I read the book, my first thought was, I want to interview Ben. I mean, I, this has been one of the interviews I've been looking forward to all year. So then I get finished and it's like, oh my gosh, wh- where do I even begin? Because we, we have a we have a limited time. So I thought, well, let, let's come up with two different buckets. One of my buckets is names because this book could easily be named the obscure men and women behind the life of groceries. So I, I picked out three names. It may not be the three you picked out, but let's start with Lynn. And Lynn almost broke my heart. Uh, Lynn is a truck driver. I, I, I like Lynn. If I ever meet Lynn, I will give her a hug and I might even write her a check. But t- tell us a little bit about your relationship with Lynn and how you got to know her and how she found her way in this remarkable book. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm one, I'm really glad that you said that about like the obscure lives of people who handle the groceries. Cause I, to me, that is how the book operates uh, on some level. It's character studies, it's portraits of people. And then hopefully 
by looking at that level of the industry, you can see something about the kind of big picture 30,000 foot view that has been missing and, and it brings a little humanity in. <clears throat> but Lynn certainly is a, is a character who's dripping with humanity, um, in some ways good, in some ways bad. She was a tough, um, she was a tough, tough woman to interview, to be honest. Um, so, but to back up, let me contextualize for people who haven't read the book. Um, the, I, I really wanted to understand the system of trucking and logistics, which is responsible for uh, so much of the efficiency gains in the grocery world. I think that world is on full display right now. Uh, the supply chain kind of uh, um, has really come to the forefront with COVID and, and the pandemic and, and the breakdowns. Um, of course, I was writing this pre-COVID. And the trucking industry seemed like a place that had gone through dramatic changes over the last 40 years um, from a place where it was essentially a good blue collar job, middle class, dominated by unions and a kind of tight cartel of trucking companies. But that, that actually played to the advantage of like labor negotiations. There's a very steady blue collar job that, that under Carter and then Reagan got completely deregulated <clears throat> and the consequences for the industry were, were dramatic and the uh, prices of, of trucking fell tremendously. Uh, the cost of goods, no doubt the cost of groceries trickled down, um, became much more competitive. <clears throat> but the industry as a whole was caught in a race to the bottom. Um, and essentially trucking companies were bidding. Um, in, in, it became very competitive and, and bids would be getting lower and lower and lower. And it's... It, affected every aspect of the industry, but probably the trucker themselves became the most, you know, the most affected by this. And I think in the book, there's something, a stat to the effect that like truckers in the 2000, 2010s were, are working for twice the, uh, at twice the efficiency at about half the cost that they were in the 1970s, at, at half the salary that they were in the 1970s. So it's like just a damn, they're working twice as hard, twice as efficient and getting about half the take home pay. Um, and of course, when you start poking the industry, um, even I started questioning even those numbers, like half the take home pay. So Lynn, I, who I rode around with, um, and in, in the, she was kind enough to let me into her, the cab of her truck, which is a very intimate time with someone. You're essentially in their home, you know, you're right. sleeping in a, in a bunk bed situation in the back of the cab. Um, she would, she made a hundred dollars for the week that I was with her and the week before that and the week before that. And she, she was caught in, um, a system that you could really only describe as debt peonage. Um, she was what's known as an owner operator of her rig. Um, which doesn't mean that she owned, <laughs> it meant she op operated, but it, it meant that she, um, was given a lease on this truck and had to pay it down. And because of the way the lease agreement was structured, she could only take jobs from the carrier that she had signed the lease agreement, which thus meant that she was completely beholden them and couldn't actually um, force them into a competitive situation, even as they were forced into a competitive situation by all competing carriers and, you know, only able to offer her um, rock bottom prices. And the result was someone who is, re is really trapped in, uh, in a cycle of poverty and had basically assumed all the risks that an independent operator takes on without any of the benefits of being an independent operator and getting to kind of um, play companies off each other uh, and, and you know, force them to be competitive for her services. She was beholden to them, but had 
they outsourced every piece of maintenance, repair, uh, you know, tax filings, you know, a- anything, any costs she, she was bearing. And it was totally brutal. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. And when you mentioned $100 mm-hmm. a week, she's grossing a little over 200000 a year. It's just all Correct. of these costs she's responsible for. And again, her story is sad. I I might just add, we won't get into the details, but this is also an industry we would not want our daughters to get into, right? No, I I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, And I really tried hard. So women truck drivers at that time only made up about 5% of the industry, but I really wanted to to ride with a, a female trucker because of all the vulnerabilities that women face, men face too, actually. It's a brutal industry on men as well. It's lonely. It's isolated. Uh, you're paired with people. It's hyper-violent. But then women also face the like additional factor of it's just horrendously, um, you know, this, the Lynn says to me at some point, she's like, if I met a female trucker who wasn't sexually harassed or assaulted, uh, over the course of her career, I wouldn't believe her <laughs> or like, or, or didn't know someone else who had been harassed or sexually assaulted over the course of their career. I wouldn't believe her. Um, and, and that was certainly the, what I found just interviewing people. Uh, the stories were horrific and, and it's, and it's structurally the case when you're a driver, you know, it, it may seem like a blue collar untrained job, but trucking is a difficult thing. You have to, it's a skilled, uh, job you have to learn on the job. And the way, only way to do that is by learning from a more experienced driver who drives with you in this very intimate, you know, household like situation where you're crammed into the cab of a truck, sleeping on bunk beds. And that's your supervisor that, or that's the person who's responsible for training you. And thus, uh, you know, holds your ability to become a trucker on your, your own at their discretion. And if, you know, you don't have to be the wizard of Oz to see the potential of abuse. you right. It's like, uh, and, and again, like, you know, Liz herself had a, a, tra- a tra- trainee, trainer, sorry, who uh, was was quite abusive, and and just about every woman I talked to had stories to tell that were just horrific. Friends and peers who know me well will call me Mister Emotionless. Uh, the only time I will ever shed a tear is if my favorite baseball team gets beat in the World Series. However, when I read the story of Tun Lin, did I say that name correctly? That's right. uh, my heart was moved. His story is heartbreaking. And you mentioned the shrimp industry earlier, that whole section of the book, I actually got angry at the same time. Uh, there are just some people I would love to wring their necks, but that is a harsh industry that Tun Lin is working in. Can you just 
elaborate a little bit about what you learned over in Thailand? Yeah. So I I really wanted to get to the bottom of the commodity chain. And and I think Tun Lin and, and Thai shrimp became a microcosm for that. But I but I think it's important, and I stress this at the end of the book, but but they are really um, not an exceptional um, commodity chain. There are many commodity chains that are similarly kind of exposed and corrupted and, and frankly, multi-layered to the point where finding visibility through them to clean up abuses is just hard. And, and, again, and it's like, I think contextualizing the volume in grocery is the only way to understand um, if you sit back where I started out and where, you know, a lot of people listening to this are probably are, you're like, what's the problem? Like a supply chain has like five different parts and, and you just institute some command and control over each part and, and they supervise the part before that. And, and it's this nice, neat flow chart where we can, there sh- you should be able to eliminate abuse pretty easily. And it's like, as you go into the complexity of the Thai shrimp chain, which Tunlin was at the very bottom of, it's the volume of goods being spread, the, the number of actors. That, so this was a chain that was uh, defined by brokers who would, you know, agglomerate from small holders. And um, it was not ve- it was not very like vertically integrated at all. Uh, all just made it that people at the way bottom of the supply chain um, were practically invisible, despite the best intentions of people who wanted um, to change. I don't think that, so, and, and I'm kind of being very circuitous here, but to give people context that they might not have, Tun Lin is a Burmese migrant, um, who becomes essentially enslaved. I don't think there's any other word for it, uh, on a, on a Thai, sh- on a boat, on a fishing boat that's sourcing food for the Thai shrimp industry. Um, and, you know, he's bought, uh, and sold and beaten and he watches his best friend die on the boat. Um, he didn't and, he lose the, a hand. Didn't he, he lose a hand? hand? Um, he's a much more complicated figure, I think, than just a pure victim. He's, he's very much a migrant who is, who is moving from a place where, um, you know, he was essentially starving. There were no jobs and he needed a better life. So he was an active agent on some levels, but then he becomes ensnared in something where he's absolutely, um, you know, again, I think human bondage or slavery is the only way to describe his condition. Um, but, but I guess there are nuances to Tunlin, you know, he gets off the boats and then chooses to go back on. He, he escapes this kind of extremely perilous situation. Um, and then it, you know, as someone who's trapped in a place where they don't speak the language has no money. And this has then becomes like one of his only skills, um, that he feels very confident about. And actually other parts of the supply chain, he, he, he works in a fishing factory and they're withholding his labor, uh, and his wages so much that he actually chooses to go back to the shrimp boats where he, he has some modicum of control and he thinks that he has gained some type of knowledge over the five years that he was enslaved on a boat. Anyway, suffice to say, he's a, it's a very complicated story. Um, but. <laughs> It, what it does is it really exposes just how complicated the bottom of these massive commodity chains can be and the number of different people who um, touch, you know, very elemental things like, you know, a, 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 a processed piece of shrimp has not just all the people in the manufacturing plants touching it, but the people giving the raw materials to that fa- manufacturing plant and, and the food and um, and it's so disaggregated um, that even if you're Thai Union, who is, I think, 
uh, legitimately very concerned with the publicity of, of the stories of human bondage and really wants to clean up slavery and their, their uh, supply chain, there's a limited number of options they have. Um, and, and, and it puts it a lot of, um, sacred cows in the, the food, the, you know, the foodie world at, at odds. Thai, Thai shrimp is very small holder at the, these fishing boats are small owner operated kind of, um, vessels. They're not massive corporations, but that makes them much harder to police. They're not, they're exactly not vertically integrated with HR consultants who, who, you know, are going through the chain. And on one hand, that's a beautiful thing. I think we, we, we like small farmers and, and, and we want to support them. And, and, and it does allow for, um, some economic freedom that would be lost. Uh, on the other hand, it, it really fertile ground for these abusive behaviors when, the margins are so tight and labor is one of the only places they can cut costs. You made a great comment. It doesn't mean that we can just pay more uh, at, at yes. the point of sale because you talked about this trickle down effect. It would never get down to the tunnel ends of the world. Well, I think it's really important because I think that's part of the magical thinking is that, it, it, you know, there are is a version of the supply chain that maybe is what you're dealing with at a farmer's market that's so much simpler. And if you pay more there, yeah, it does trickle down. But with the much more complicated supply chain that's caught in a race to the bottom and, and also just even on a consumer level where you have um sellers who will acknowledge these problems to different levels. And so one store might say, you know, we're going to add a 5% thing to the 5% cost uh, addition to help laborers. And that store right down the block will say, you know what, ours is slave free <laughs> and we don't have to do that. And you can come to us and pay 5% less. And as a consumer, you're just not equipped to evaluate those claims. And frankly, as grocery buyers, they're not equipped to make those claims, but that doesn't stop them from making them. Uh, exactly. And- which, which, by the way, th- th- that, that's brought up in the book too, the concept of, of, of audits. If I can jump in uh, because of time, I want to yep, bring please. up one other, I want to bring up one other individual. The book starts out, I, I don't know how, if it was hard for you to, what story do I tell first? But the story of Trader Joe, I thought that was a perfect placement. That's how we launch into the book. Uh, this guy is a great entrepreneurial story. What a tremendous entrepreneur. Can, can I read something from your book? Please. This is someone I would want to work for. Joe brought in the undereducated and offered to overpay them. Uh, this allowed him to carefully select a certain type of employee for central management, extremely intelligent, but never clever. Generalists who liked hard labor. And then finally, a few sentences down, you say turnover was virtually non-existent during his reign. So not only the guy was a great entrepreneur, he cared about people. He, he, he was a full, he was a full package. Is that, is that right? Am I getting him yeah, right? That, that was my, you know, I'll say full disclosure. I started this book because I didn't understand Trader Joe's and I was very much like, Oh, everyone who works there is so happy. They offer low prices and they have a lot of the kind of, uh, markers of like low MSG or, um, you know, the halo effect of like goods that 
seem like they would be competing with Whole Foods in terms of like fair trade and fair labor and all these other good markers. And so I didn't understand. And I, I went out thinking I was going to like blow up the Trader Joe's image or, or at least expose um, some connivance. Uh, and, and because Trader Joe's is claustrophobically secretive. Um, and, I, I, and, and really nothing had been written about them that I found compelling up to that point. <laughs> and that was another reason. I, but I thought there must be some mystery here. And I think the mystery is that Joe it was a fantastically smart person who also cared greatly about human. He was a, he was a humanist above all, but he was a businessman who was a humanist. And so he figured out how to make it work. Um, you know, there was a very pivotal moment in his career that I detail in the book where 7-Eleven moves into town. And at that point, he's uh, running a fleet of convenience stores and he knows he's doomed. And, you know, when we talked about this uh, with him, he was like, the, the only constraints I had was that I had a payroll of people that I was already paying like top wages for. And I wanted to, to, to honor them, <laughs> but I had to reinvent everything else to like figure out how to maintain that wage structure that I was committed to paying. Cause, cause life was too short to work for like the boobs at 7-Eleven, <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that he would say, uh, which, which may be unfair to the people at 7-Eleven, but he, he really believed that like, if I'm going to be working with people, I want them to be smart and I want to spend time around quality individuals. So I'm going to hire at the top end of the, the wage, but then how do you make that work? <laughs> right. It's, it's easy to say that, but, but he figured it out and he figured out how to kind of inject humanism into groceries, um, which had become a very, and, and, and largely is in many other chains to this day, just this continuous goods, um, that really are stripped of identity, you know, commodity goods bombed out, um, indistinguishable from one another. And, and to the extent that they are distinguishable, it's largely marketing. And the, as a consumer, you can see through that. And he, he, you know, he went the other direction. He was like, how do I bring as much individuality into these goods? How do I market canned corn like it was wine um, and it, it vintage labeled and make consumers see and care about that? And, and, and you know, again, uh, as you know, from reading the book, these weren't just like hopeful things that he was trying to do. They, they were very business oriented decisions based on what he was seeing, based on like the GI Bill get, causing consumers to become more educated, um, based on um, the cost of travel going down. And he felt like travel was a form of education, which would change people's vocabularies. So, so he was injecting this humanism because he thought it was also savvy as a businessman. And that combination is just, it's rare. <laughs> I'm going to let you pick your topic here. I got a section called entrees. Uh, I, I've got a, a discussion, a bullet point about do the auditors need auditing, which I thought that was a hoot. And there's a, the section of the book about how consumer products work their way into uh, or I should say onto store shelves and you use the example of Slossa, which by the way, I looked it up and it looks like that is a, it, it is a product that we can find on store shelves uh, of those two auditing or Slossa. What, what's your favorite there? Um, well, Slossa is closer to my heart, I guess, because it really changed the way I saw the store more auditing. I mean, we can also give the short auditing like soundbite, which is, the system Go is pretty ahead. broken. <laughs> uh, like the, and seriously, the regime, it, yeah. As I was gonna say, you didn't you say in the book it's easier to just bribe 
the auditors than to comply. Yeah, that was in my quote. That's a quote from uh, from a, a labor a watch, uh, a Chinese labor watch um, analyst, I guess. Uh, but but yeah, yes, I think in many cases it is. So, but even if you're not in a place where you're bribing, because I don't think straight out bribes are necessary given the. Um, incentive structure in the audits. Um, audits are paid for by the company who are being audited and they can shop around. It's a for-profit industry. So they can shop right. between different auditors and find the one that they want. Um, but, but more putting that aside, audits are snapshots. And so, you know, it, they're, they're a one day visit over the 365 days uh, that uh, the factory or farm, um, is under operation. And that works okay for things like food safety, which is where um, the audit regime really started. Uh, the audit regime started because grocers wanted a way of indemnifying themselves um, for food safety violations. So it was very much like COA, cover your um, butt kind of uh, origins. And it worked okay for that. But when it comes to like employee rights violations, labor standards, non-empirical, you know, wages being withheld six months ago, a, vi a, a visit to a factory is not going to produce any evidence, especially one which is inherently structured in ways that don't involve employee interviews, you, you know, probably in a place where people don't speak the language. I mean, it just, it becomes laughable at a certain point that this is the structure we've designed um, to, to enforce Stand labor standards, and nobody would defend it for me. I went looking. I was like, "Well, what's the pot? What's the case? Give me someone who's going to defend this system." I so I talked to the big auditing firms. They wouldn't go on record, uh, but but off record, they would be like, "Yeah, we know this is a huge problem." <laughs> like nobody was nobody was willing to speak up for it, uh, which I think is very telling. Um, and it, yeah, it's broken. So that, sorry, that's probably, I, I'm incapable of giving short answers apparently with you. Um, that's like the short answer on audit. Slasa just changed the way I saw the store because I had no idea how difficult it was to bring a product to market and all the hoops that you have to jump through through an entrepreneur. I think I, uh, I, I had this kind of, um, vision that, you know, I make a good guacamole. I could put it in a bottle. Can I interject and say, or ask the question, would, would Julie, is her name Julie Boucher? Boucher, Boucher. Boucher. Would she have better odds of futures betting on the Kentucky Derby winner three months in advance, <laughs> as opposed to getting her product on store shelves? Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Um, she, you know, the one thing, thing she had was the willingness to work extremely hard and grind away uh at very little profit um for i was a long worn out time. i was yeah. worn out <laughs> and she's an incredible hard worker and so one it was a pleasure to profile her because i got a taste of what it takes to make this happen and it was just so far from my dilettante's version of what, what it would mean to like get your product on shelf um but Julie, uh, I think, would also be straightforward and and just how much the the deck is stacked against someone like her who does who isn't she's not venture backed she didn't have deep pockets and this the the way the grocery store is structured now is largely as a landlord leasing space rather than someone who is going out and um, looking for the best quality things and that's because buyers are overwhelmed I mean the number of 
um, options in a mid-sized store. So 30,000 different products in a, in, in a mid-sized store. Um, the buyers are just overwhelmed. And so this shift from food knowledge and expertise to one of like expertise on gross margin and that quickly bleeds into, well, how can I juice my gross margin or how, how can I get the most from this product? Well, I can just ask the entrepreneur to pay for the, their place on the shelf directly, kind of a pay to play system. Um, it, it's very intuitive, uh, uh, but it favors people with, you know, venture backing or, or deep pockets and, and a small player like Julie, um, didn't have that. She had to make up for it with just hustle. And it was hard, it's hard to watch. And most, uh, the vast, vast majority of, of these entrepreneurs just fold up and disappear. I want to somehow reach out to her. It just, you talk about perseverance, grit, <laughs> resilience. Exactly. Uh, and by the way, as I'm listening to you, you'd be a great dinner guest. It just, just listening to your <laughs> stories. I, I have a couple of curiosity questions. The industry, ha- have you gotten any negative feedback about this book? Have you gotten some pushback? Have you gotten some criticism from those inside the industry? I really haven't. Uh, and it was something I was quite bracing for, uh, you know, especially from the whole foods people. And, and, you know, this could, there's probably some cognitive bias where I, like, or like some bias where the, the people who hated the book just aren't finding me. <laughs> and thank you for that. Uh, if you hated the book, like I, I appreciate not hearing from you. Um, but uh, I truly, I've been, I've got, especially when it first came out, I got a number of emails from, from people who you would imagine, you know, like executives at Aldi, um, people in the Walmart world, um, that were very, very flattering. Uh, and like, thank, thank you for writing something. This is, it's like overdue. That's great. Because I think I don't demonize the individuals in the grocery world. And I think one thing that, the dominant food narrative right now, or at least what I was growing up was like, there's like these nameless, faceless, greedy corporations out there that are concerned with their own profit and don't care about your health. And I think there's some truth to that critique in certain areas, but I don't think it's true for grocery. <laughs> the margins are too slim. These guys are sweating and they're trying hard to serve the consumer. They're trying to, 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 to deliver things because they they have to sweat, it's so competitive that consumers want, and, and consumers aren't making that easy. They want, you know, they want low prices and high quality and lots of options, which are three things that don't, you know, stack up and, and aren't, you know, synthesized very well. Um, so I, I, I try to imbue those contradictions. And really, if we're going to be blaming anyone, it's, it's crazy consumers who are price comparison shopping for uh, exquisitely high ingredients and not realizing the costs of that behavior steamroll down the chain in ways that are very hard to fix. And that is like the beginning of the race to the bottom begins at checkout. Um, and so I, you know, the, the industry insider was probably kinder than, um, it would have been otherwise because I, I went out of my way to, to make that point. I know this probably does not include Tun Lin, but have any of the people you've written about have, have they stayed in touch with you? Have you been in touch with some of them? Yeah, yeah, sure. Julie, um, I think she was very skeptical of the book at first, and it didn't. It was very um, took her a long time to get on board with it. But but then I think she just heard because you know 
I, I'm also not writing like a hagiography of these people. I, I you know, I think that it's a pretty warts and all. Um, so yes. I have tremendous respect for Julie, but I also know that it, I, I, I you know, it's kind of terrible to be portrayed by somebody else in any situation. You, you do, there's, but a great there, there's nothing. Control. There's nothing negative about Julie's story. In fact, I agree. It's, it's but a, her story is inspiring. inspiring. I agree. I agree. But I think it's hard to see that when it's your your own self that's being portrayed. Um, Fair but enough. she came around, and, and and I think enough people told her that 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 that. So we've been in touch, and and I think she's 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 on board that it that it was not a that it was not a mean spirited profile of her. Um, but that was interesting to watch. Uh, because I do I have the utmost respect for her. Um, and I and I think that uh, she really is like to the extent that you can say there's an American dream out there of like grit, perseverance and hard work. Well, she's a, the embodiment of it. Uh, and it was what really, you know, it just shows how difficult it is. <laughs> but but, you know, that doesn't mean it's not inspiring. And, you know, Joe Kalum unfortunately died right before the book came out, which was a real tragedy um, because he is a, just a special guy that I think um, has a lot to offer our current moment, you know, just in terms of how he treated employees and and the ways that he was able to marry humanism and business. Um, he has a, but he came out with a book, but which actually was the basis. It was an unpublished autobiography when I was interviewing him and he gave me access to it and, and I was delighted to have it. Uh, and it f- formed a, the basis of a lot of the Trader Joe's section, but now after posthumously it was published. And so you can get that. And that has even more details on his career than I was able to cram in. Um, of course I, there's other, there's other details in my book that, that came from interviewing, you know, a broad section of, of early Trader Joe's employees that, aren't, that isn't in his book. I did not know what to expect from this book. I started it and then I got hooked. But I'm curious, what do you hope readers get out of this book? God, I wish I had a pithy answer for that. Um, I don't really. I want people to appreciate the system that we have. And I think it's easy to tear down institutions. And I think that is the road to nihilism that I very much... I want to be able to bring a hard critique to this world without succumbing to the nihilistic impulses that it's just evil and bad. And and so that begins by understanding how fantastic grocery is doing at meeting our needs and just what a miracle it is that we have these options at our disposal. The greatest kings and emperors, right, have don't have what we have by walking down the street and filling up our, you know, carts um, with options that are that are at our fingertips. I think that it like making sure that that point is anchored at the same time as anchoring these very human stories that often end in indignity and often end in um, despair of like just elevating that so people could appreciate the breadth. Um, that was, that, that was my hope. <laughs> What's the next book inside your head? Yeah, I am, you know, I'm sketching it out. It's, um, and I, I'm, I'm slowly plotting. I am not uh, in a place where I'm like really talking about the content of it because it's not fully formed yet. And it's, I would happens if I, I, I start talking about a book too early, it just changes what it will be. Um, so I'm, I'm used, like, I love talking about books once I've, when I'm in the writing process, because that actually helps me write. But 
pre-writing and when you're just doing the research, it's, it's actually hard. It's not like a secrecy thing. It's just that I don't know where it's going to go yet. And so I want to be protective of letting it take me places that I'm unexpected. I am following you on Amazon. So when that book <laughs> comes out, I will be hitting click buy now. And then I hope we get to talk again. Oh, Mark, it's been a total pleasure. And I want to just say, I, and I don't know if this is transparent to anyone reading it, but you sent this this menu of options for like the interview arc for this. And I, it's such a pleasure to like see, because it's not, it's not like bullet points. Uh, it's just kind of like big themes that you've pulled out of it. And, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, it's really like interesting to see someone else frame things. And like, it's kind of like a matrix of like themes and depth. Uh, and I really appreciate just like that attention. Um, it's really nice. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. You may be thinking this sounds a little bit about Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. It's been years since I read that. I believe it was meant to be an expose about the meatpacking industry. It was written in the form of a novel uh, during the 20th century, but that's not what this book is. It's not an indictment against the grocery industry, but you will better, or I should say you'll learn more about the silent voices who are one of the millions in this space. The book is part entrepreneurialism at its finest. It's also part social sciences. And I guess to be partly redundant, it's, it's heavy on human interest. Benjamin Lohr, thank you very much. The book is The Secret Life of Groceries. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. Until next time. 